You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we are very honoured to welcome back to our show Ambrose Ferber, web developer and art director turned educator who swapped enterprise code for teaching technology and acting to middle and high school students. Ambrose, welcome back to our show. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's uh, really great to be back. It's lovely to have you here. Last time you were here on our show, you were talking about your thoughts about American education in general. And today I know you've return to address more specific things in terms of your opinion on how schools are run. So so let's start with the calendar, with the, the daily and the annual schedule. In your opinion, does the daily schedule and the annual school calendar, does that work to our best advantage? I don't think it does. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, there isn't a lot of data on this yet because people have not really tried altering it in any kind of substantive way in a very long time. Um, I'll start with the annual schedule, the idea primarily of having a summer break, having mm-hmm. a summer vacation, um, which probably most listeners probably think that that has to do with agrarian society, kids having to go back to the farm and, uh, you know, take care of farm stuff. But it turns out that's actually not true. Um, I thought that that was true for a long time. It turns out that it's really about uh, rich kids in the city. When the cities got too hot in the summer, they would all just take off to the Catskills or whatever. And, uh, and then, and then they would, uh, Uh, not be there for school. And school attendance was not mandatory. So the schools would be empty, these wastelands of just a couple of students. So finally, the school system said, well, let's just abandon school during the summer because we're going to lose a bunch of students anyway. So is that is that a universal reason for it? I mean, that seems extraordinary to me that that what we're talking about, I mean, the, the school calendar is pretty much the same all around the world. So I can't speak so much around the world, Um, although, uh, and you could probably tell me, I think in England, the summer break is a lot less robust than it is here. Actually, I think it's longer. Longer. I do think it's longer. Um, I seem to remember having like 10 to 12 weeks of summer vacation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But then we had shorter what was called half term. Back then it was like two days or something like that. So it's a a little bit different. Yeah. So, but but here, I I don't think it was completely, that's where it started in urban areas like New York on the coasts. And then as with so many things here. Things that start on the coast eventually just bleed into the center part of the country, and eventually everyone was just doing that. Um, <clears throat> so I think that a year-round system would be far better. Um, we, at my school, we suffer from this uh, summer slide thing. That's what they call us. The official term is this summer slide. It's those two weeks of uh, the beginning of the school year, sometimes a little bit more, where everyone's just useless. And uh, the students are useless. Sometimes the teachers are useless. Every, nobody is really back in that school mode. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while to kind of re, re-engage with everyone. 
And I've been noticing, especially the last couple of years, that the end of the year is mm-hmm. also a little bit useless. Uh, I saw it especially with my two uh, kids in elementary school. It'd be you know two weeks at the end of school where everybody just started doing kind of nothing because everyone was burnt out. Everyone was looking forward to summer break and just kind of beginning to check out. And I think um, far better would be a year-round system where we could uh, we could avoid both of those pitfalls at the beginning and the end of the school year. And I'm not suggesting uh, a massive increase to the number of days of school, um, but splitting it up so that you would do nine weeks of school and then you'd get three weeks off. And, uh, and you could just repeat that pattern um, throughout the entire calendar year. And then, of course, have ceremonies and things at the end of the school year for promoting or graduating students. Um, and then that way, you nine weeks of school is not so much that um, people would be as burnt out as they are at the end of May. And, uh, and then you end up with, uh, and then you get this really nice three-week break at the end of that nine weeks. And uh, you could even line up those three weeks sometimes with a week in the spring and two weeks in the winter. So you get these nice long breaks. Uh, I have met some resistance from my colleagues about that. You know, it's like one of the benefits of being a teacher is, is that you get the summer off. Well, although you don't really, you don't really get the full, it's not like, it's not necessarily like having a real job, but it's also not like just completely free either. And getting three weeks off every nine weeks is a pretty cushy deal all by itself and a, and a really great way to, to, and it means that you can take vacations in different parts of the year. If you're a skier, you know, other winter activities, you can take vacation in the winter. You can take vacation at any time of year. Plus it means that, um, uh, that that students who are, uh, you know, parents usually don't get m- as more than two weeks anyway. So it's mm-hmm. not like you're taking away this whole summer break thing for families vacationing. Very few families go away for more than three weeks at a time. And then you could take more than one three-week break throughout the course of the school year. Now, I will say, I kind of see it in your face here. I, I will say that the problem is, is that unless everybody does it unless right. it's sort of a universal adoption of a year-round program? It becomes very difficult because parents who have kids who need still need childcare, young kids who need childcare, who go away to summer, if if they're trying to find three weeks of childcare every nine weeks, yeah. um, unless the whole system is designed around that, it doesn't really work. So I will concede that unless it's possible to uni- excuse me, universally change, it would be an unlikely. Uh, unlikely thing to be able to do but i think it's okay to ask the question and to to look at alternatives because when you said the summer slide i thought you were going to say something else Mm. not that as you said the students are useless and everyone's but that they've forgotten so much because when there's so much of a gap um however long it is eight weeks and so on when there's so much of a gap between learning and when kids especially and I, I i really appreciate you seeing that as a teacher near the end of the year when the teachers are exhausted and when you know they're trying to get everything crammed in because there's tests which we can discuss mm-hmm. um they're trying to get everything crammed in but then there's the school plays at the end of the year and and suddenly you know you're 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 the, the shift moves away from academic exercise to we'll just hold you in class for as long as possible and then okay off you go there seems to be a a a period of months 
where the kids aren't learning. But, but I guess part of that comes down to a philosophy of education on what is learning. Um, and I guess that comes down to should all learning be classroom learning? And I guess that comes to the next question about the daily schedule, doesn't it? Which is the annual schedule and the daily schedule touch on each other. When I was a, a kid in school, you know, our, our, our school went to four o'clock, but we were exhausted. And then we had homework, which we can talk about as well. So what are your thoughts on the daily schedule? So I, I the daily schedule, you're right. It's deeply connected to the annual schedule in general. It's deeply connected to homework. It's deeply connected to um, things like theater and other performing arts. It's deeply connected to athletics. All of these things have to have to interchange with each other in the daily schedule. Um, what I would like to see, honestly, is a longer schedule. And I know you say that you were exhausted, and we have to be careful about exhausting people. And I think that if you just said, look, if everybody went to school from 8 to 5, and it was just the same thing that we're doing now, okay. but just more of it, then that would be a terrible idea. And I think it would ruin both children and teachers and it would not be a, a good outcome for anybody. But if we were to fill that time with more experiential education, with more collaboration, with more um, interesting projects, with more things that would give students, prepare students, I think, in ways that I want to go back to what you said about what it means to be educated mm -hmm. or, you know, what education mm -hmm. means and this. We talked about this the last time, about what it means to be educated, and I, I am feeling yet even stronger now than I did a few months ago that the idea of being educated is not necessarily about being, um, knowing all of these different facts or being having all of these things at your command, but how you interact with the world and how you interact with the knowledge that you have and how you express yourself. And I think we could do more of that in that long day. And in elementary school especially, the right now I think most elementary schools are getting out at 2, 2.30, something like that. And there are, you know, maybe six or seven families in the country where one – where there's only one person working, right? right? It's like the vast majority of families have two working parents. And managing that afternoon, I feel like we should be going – to school and work about the same time and coming home all at about the same time. And then for teachers, we could also fill that longer day with more prep time and grading time. So they would have a uh, time where you can move students around and they would stagger when teachers are, are contacting students and when, student, when teachers mm. are working on preparing for classes. And then that way, um, everybody gets to go home about the same time. I don't know if you want to respond to that or if we can talk about homework. Because yeah, because homework I think fits right, deeply in. That's that. exactly what I was going to say, which is because when kids finish at school, and I remember when I was a kid and I went, I was very lucky to be able to go to a, 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 one of the top schools in England at the time. But I came home and I spent two to three hours doing homework every night. And I think that profoundly affected my social development. And what you're talking about as a longer school day must necessarily mean a change in homework. So I guess the question is, you know, why do we do homework in your well, opinion? Okay, so I, there's a couple of reasons we do homework, some good, some bad. Um, I, the bad, of course, is sort of tradition, inertia. 
that, you know, like, oh, well, you're supposed to do homework. And so teachers come up with things to do for homework. And sometimes it's uh, busy work. Sometimes it's completely useless things that they're making students do. I think there are some things that are hard to do in any other way than by yourself on your own. Like reading a novel for a literature class, um, that's you know, that's not something that's very cooperative. It's not very collaborative. It's something to do on your own. And I think when teachers rightly would like a student to have read some part of a novel so that they can talk about it, it's reasonable to say, well, go out and read some part of this novel and then come back and we'll talk about it. Um, So, and there's been a lot of studies that have... um, that, that have correlated achievement and homework. So uh, Duke University has some stuff saying that, you know, that they, they feel like there is some correlation between um, eventual achievement and homework. However, I have a real problem with how some of those studies were controlled for other things, for the kind of students it is, or right. perhaps it's, uh, an achieve, it, it's a measure of achievement in being able to manage time more than it is actual intellectual achievement. Um, and for every study that says that there's a correlation between achievement and homework, there's three or four studies that say it's really actually quite bad for our students, and it's, it's disrupting. Bad, bad in what way? Well, um, one of the ways uh, is family time. Right. That students are going home and uh, not spending time with their families. I teach mostly middle and upper school, uh, high school, and especially in the high school, uh, at my schools, there are students who end up with three or four hours of homework every night uh, on top of a long day. And so there's clearly not a lot of time for them to spend with their families, interacting with their families, and or they end up going to bed very late right. and not getting a lot of sleep. And critics might say, well, there would be enough time for them to accomplish all of their homework and everything if they didn't play video games or watch Netflix in the evening. <laughs> to which I say, that's not true. <laughs> first of all, that's maybe not true, especially with four hours. Over. And also, they should play some video games. They should read a book that's just for them. They should have a hobby. They should be doing things that are just for them because we all need time that's just for us. We need to recharge. And if students are expected to be students, Mm. expected to be academic from eight in the morning until 11 o'clock at night and then get up the next day and do it all over again, I think it's psychologically damaging to them, emotionally damaging to them, and I think it's even academically damaging to them. And I think it makes them resent the process of learning, resent the process of being intellectual and and expanding their knowledge and their interest in other things, as opposed to, we want them to want this, Right. right? We need to take a break. I want to come back to homework after the break. Um, but because I, I think I wonder if it's tied in with a with a larger thing actually. So we're going to take a break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom, my guest this evening, Ambrose Ferber, um, the former web developer and art director turned educator, and we will be back after this break.
You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Um, my guest this evening, Ambrose Ferber, a local educator. We've been talking about the school day and the school year and also homework. And you, before the break, you were talking about the um, the pressure that kids have to to do so much homework that they miss out on social time. I actually wonder if that is tied in with the economic system around which our country is based mm. in the sense that um, under particularly under a global globalized capitalist marketplace, you are obliged to produce more to consistently produce more. And so you're obliged almost to put your own personal well-being aside in order to increase, to always increase. And so I, I do wonder if there is perhaps even an underlying social assumption that your personhood is almost irrelevant so long as you produce and in particular produce results. And those results are, are found in testing, particularly annual testing. And so I, I do wonder if there is a um, if there is a, a correlation between the the underlying assumption of our society to continually produce more and the the desire to give the, the sort of institutional desire to give children as little space to be children as possible because they have to learn more because they have to pass exams because exam results connect to teachers' salaries and to how much schools get. Am I right? Am I wrong? Yeah, you're totally right. And okay. uh, unfortunately, I take it all back. Uh, we are definitely preparing our students uh, completely for a life in uh, the workplace because uh, you're right. That it's all about you know more, more, more. It's all about sacrificing your personal life for uh, for production. <laughs> but I think I think I would rather change the latter than sure. uh, continue to prepare students in that way. I think you're right. It's, it's, uh, homework is tied. So part of the reason that we do homework too, is that we always have these endpoints that classes have to get to, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for homework is, is that there isn't time to do everything that the standards say we have to do in a school year for a particular class. Precalculus needs to get to this point <laughs> at the end of the year. And if they are not at that point, then we have failed that class. That class has not done what it's supposed to do. And therefore, teachers are obliged to give some homework in order to cover all of the ground that they have to cover. Um, and I question that assumption. I question the assumption that classes have to get to a particular point. Because if we didn't do that, if we let classes get to where they get to, then um, then we could avoid a lot of homework. Now, the problem there, of course, is that, you know, universities... Sure. And you know, continuity for the next year. And continuity for the next year and all of that. Uh, I will say at my school, speaking of continuity, we've adopted a new math program a new math curriculum. We are in the process of adopting, I should say, because uh, it's going to take a number of years to get the entire school on this system. But this new curriculum, uh, instead of it being, you know, geometry one year and then algebra two the next year and then pre-calculus the next year, is uh, varying degrees of all maths, all geometry, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, each year, there is some of all of them so that we don't end up with students who have like two years between the last time they did algebra right, right. 
and uh, and when they're doing calculus, so it's not it's, so it's all like really fresh. And I think that kind of um, continuous curriculum, mm -hmm. instead of saying like, and also I think that if we if we do, uh, if if our endpoint is more focused on uh, disciplines and and competencies in those disciplines, like we need students to be able to write at a certain level. We're not going to make them do English 9, 10, 11, 12. We want to, before they can graduate, they need to write at a certain level and they need to read at a certain level. And how right. they get there might be widely varied. Um, that would allow us to um, step back from the homework uh, a lot, I think. One of the questions, you know, as I hear you talk about this, I, I wonder if part of the difficulty in creating institutional education is there are so many kids before before we spoke i sat very briefly with some of martin buber's work on education mm -hmm. which is very much personal and I, I i found myself thinking about the difficulty with this is there's a class of 26 kids and they are at widely different socioeconomic backgrounds they are at widely different economic uh, um, educational levels um, and so putting them all together means almost formalizing and saying uh, almost limiting the creativity and li limiting the modes of expression. And I, I, I don't know if I'm if I'm saying this as a sort of excusing and but it seems like what you're talking about is you're aiming towards a different style of education. And I guess my question from here is, is that possible in a mass educational setting? It is if we change a couple of assumptions um, and if we lean on some technology. Techn tell, uh, tell us the assumptions. What the, are the okay, underlying? Yeah, so the assumptions are, A, that um, students who are coincidentally at approximately the same uh, chronological point are developed at the same point. Ah, so and age level, grade level classes. That we, we associate age level and grade level. We associate age level with competency and or at least assumed competency or standard competency. And that is not accurate. There's a lot of evidence that shows kids really do develop brains, bodies, everything at different levels. And we should be Grouping kids, for the most part, by competency. Right. And this also allows us to be more collaborative with students and less adversarial. As things stand right now, um, because students at a certain grade level are supposed to have reached certain standards, we have to tell them that if they haven't met those standards, that they are a failure. Mm -hmm. um, we have to tell them that they are not smart enough or they're not bright enough or they're not trying hard enough. Huh. And, and making that assumption is uh, not only is it cruel, but I think it also makes students often uh, give up yes, and check out and, and not engage any further because what's the point? So I think our, that's our, the first assumption okay. that we have to get rid of. If we want to work on a different kind of education at a massive scale, we have to stop grouping kids by their age, which introduces its own difficulty, of course, right? Because that's a really easy way to group students is by age and just say like, right. here's this very easy package of students. I can move them along at this level. But with technology, 
we can track students so easily. It, it, it would be so much easier to um, look at each individual student and be able to track their progress using all kinds of big data algorithms, using AI to right. um, be able to keep track of individual students and alert administrators and alert teachers when a student is falling behind in certain areas and, and instead, uh, you know, really, really be able to then intervene in the areas that students need the most, as opposed to just assuming that everyone's moving along at the same pace. So in three minutes, mm -hmm. uh, what are the other assumptions that we have that need to be challenged? Um, well, uh, I think we, the other assumptions, one of the big assumptions that we have is that the, the milestones that we have set forth, that those mean something. Huh. Okay, go on. <laughs> go on. Um, really, it, it's all arbitrary. There, there's this set of arbitrary milestones starting, if we start with the top, that university expects incoming freshmen to have certain levels of different kinds of things that they need to be able to do. Those have sort of uh, infiltrated themselves into our common psyche because of tradition and practice and sort of like, you know, this complex set of organic processes that over time people thought, well, it'd be good if students could have a little bit of this math if they wanted. But I would challenge that. And I think a, a rethink of what it is that we want students to, and it comes back to the thing that we keep talking about, which is that students who are curious, mm -hmm. students who are interested in things, students who can think critically, which at some point we should talk about what the definition of being able to think critically means, right. students who have logic, students who have passion, students who um, are not afraid to fail, those are the things that will make them successful in college. Those are the things that will make them successful later on in their careers. Assuming they're doing interesting work, they should have those features, not necessarily an arbitrary set of math or a level of history or a level of English literature. They need to be able to read. They need to be able to write with capital R and capital W. Right. Um, and, you know, some basic maths and some basic science, right? But I don't know that we need to, we have these assumptions about what those final milestones need to look like. And I would like to pull back from those. And I would like to say we should be looking at this more holistically and making sure that students are prepared in a much broader, more profound way to go on, to leave high school, to leave elementary school for middle and high school, to leave high school for college and to leave college for life in the workplace. I, I find this fascinating. And unfortunately, we're out of time again. And But I, I really hope you can come back to keep talking about this because just exposing those assumptions and naming them, um, just just asking the question, why do we do this? Um, you know, what is it right for universities, for higher education to assume certain things? In which case, what are those basics? But then what you're talking about as well, the, the curiosity, the interest, the logic, the passion, being able to think critically is, is talking more about a more well-rounded student, which comes back to what you were saying about homework and spending family time, assuming that family time is positive time um, and, and, and 
the ability to pursue a student's own interests and hobbies, which I would hope that education furthers and is able to 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 ignite that passion further. So it's been it's been fascinating talking to you. I really Ambrose Ferber, thank you for for coming here and, and sharing these these questions about education. Thank you for coming to our show this evening. Thank you. Can't wait to come back. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.